towards the end of our class, we discussed uh, somewhat, if you back up a little bit further here, uh, what we refer to as, the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. We talked about that being just those who are against Christ, going all the way back to verse 18 and following, where that began talking about the last hour and the Antichrist. We talked about how that those Antichrists, the word Antichrist means what? Against Christ, right? If you're anti-anything, you're against it. Are we anti-abortion? I sure hope so. So we're against abortion, right? And so anti-Christ against Christ. And picking up in verse uh, 22, we talked about there, uh, who, is a liar, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is anti-Christ and not the Father and the Son. Literally, the Bible literally just defined what that meant. Uh, verse 23, he who denies the Son does not have a Father either. And he acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so again, the importance of if you know God, you have to know Christ. You cannot know Christ and not know God. And uh, and especially in the New Testament time period, and well, actually it's the Old Testament time period, with the Pharisees, when they were dealing with Christ, uh, they claimed to believe in God, but they denied Christ being the Son of God completely. Uh, or they, yes, many of them did anyway. Uh, and the Jews as well. And so they try to accept God and then deny that Jesus was the Christ. And so, they, of course, that's not logical, as the Bible points out here in verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> so verse 24 says, Therefore let, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did we say it was they heard from the beginning? The truth, right? The gospel, it could be from the beginning of the time the church began. Or it could be from the beginning of their own individual conversion. Uh, most likely, at least in my opinion, probably from the time the church began, which they had heard from the beginning from Acts 2. Uh, they had heard things concerning the gospel, concerning the church, things such as that. Uh, what you had heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, which would be the truth, right, the gospel truth, abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. When a person is baptized, the Bible teaches they're added to what? The church, which is what? The kingdom, which is the body of Christ. You're getting there. The body of Christ, right? All the same thing. The church, the kingdom, the body of Christ. The Bible tells us that the church, which is his body, the church being the kingdom, uh, all right all right. answers to the body is what, we're, what I was looking for there uh, in verse 24. And we are we abide in the Son and in the Father. That is, we have fellowship with the Son, with God the Father. But, in verse 24, is there not a condition around that? It is if it abides in you, right? Now, I have a book in my small collection of books. I don't call it a library because I don't have that many books. But uh, I have one called, Is Salvation Conditional? Now, if we look in the Bible, if you look in this, just this particular verse, is salvation, and salvation is only in Christ, right? Is salvation conditional? That's a condition right there. Yes, exactly. I got to answer away. <laughs> yes, it's conditional. But when, when you talk to people sometimes today, do they want to talk about conditions? And I'm putting this in a very broad term because sometimes, unfortunately, we have some hard-headed brethren you think salvation doesn't have any conditions either. There's no conditions to obtain salvation. But in verse 24, and just one verse alone, tells us what? If what you've heard from the beginning, there's that condition. If, 
If you have, what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, like I say sometimes, the opposite also is true. If the word of truth does not abide in you, do you abide in the Son and in the Father? No. And so uh, to abide means we obey it and we continue to obey it, right? You think about, you go back to the beginning of the time period of the church, Acts chapter 2, and Peter gives the first, sometimes called the first gospel sermon because that was the day the church literally began, Acts chapter 2. And so he began to preach and to teach, and at the end we had a group of people who had what added, asked the question in verse 37, what shall we do? And he replied, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And he shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does he mean that's all you have to do? There's nothing you have to do beyond that? No, he doesn't say that at all. You know, if that's all you have to do, then in reality, then Peter had nothing he had to do either, right? He didn't have to go out and preach and teach. Now, he wanted to, but was there more than just being baptized? It's remaining faithful, right? I mean, just what we've seen already in 1 John chapter 1 and what we've seen in chapter 2, it's all about remaining faithful because he gives warnings about things that can cause you to become unfaithful, one of them being the anti-Christ that they were facing, those who do not believe in the Christ as the Son of God. And so, yes, it has conditions. Yes, it goes beyond just the initial obedience, that is, being baptized and having your sins washed away and being placed in the body of Christ. It is remaining faithful beyond that. Think about this for a moment. If your spouse on your wedding day said, said their vows, but about 10 minutes later you find out they were doing things they shouldn't be doing, would you say they're, they're still remaining faithful to you? No. That's the same idea we find here with, with in a spiritual sense, right? Being baptized and then 10 minutes later going back to what we were doing before, that's not remaining faithful, is it? And so it's much more than just that one, just that act. And it's not a one-time act. It's a continual action. Okay, verse 25. And this is a promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Us is a reference to who? Christians, right? Specifically those, you could talk about those who he's talking to directly, but also in a general term, anyone who has, who is abiding in the truth, right? Verse, verse 24. So us are those who have obeyed the gospel and continue to obey, obey it every day. As we continue to follow God's word, and when we make mistakes, we repent of it. First John 1, verse 9. So this is a promise he has promised us, eternal life. That is what is waiting for us when this life ends. And we know in this context, eternal life is a reference to heaven. Because in, if you want to get technical, everybody has eternal life. It just depends where you're going to spend it, right? And so... It is eternal life, but in this context, it's a reference to the heavenly home. Verse 26, he says here, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Those who are trying to uh, deceive really carries up the idea, well, the King James actually uses the term, I think he uses the term there, seduce you. That is, they're trying to pull you away, trying to lure you to follow after uh, something else concerning those who try to deceive you. And so he, he writes these things. He says he has written these things concerning those who try to deceive you, those who try to trick you, those who try to lure you away through false ideas. Verse 27, but the anointing, that is the approval, we talked about before how that anointing which they have is the approval they have from God because they have obeyed the gospel and they continue to, to remain faithful, they continue to obey it each and every day, which you have received from him abides in you. 
They continue to have that approval from God so long as they continue to follow and continue to obey God's word. And you do not need that anyone teach you. He's not saying they don't need teaching at all. What he's saying is what I'm telling you are things that they have already known, right? They know they have to remain faithful, but he's encouraging them to remain faithful anyway. Are we, are we ever encouraged to do things that we already know we should be doing? Well, yeah. If you tell your child you need to listen to me, do they already know they should listen to you? Yes. But you remind them you need to listen to me because sometimes we can forget things. And we look here in verse 27. You do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it taught you, you will abide in him. So as you look here in verse 27, this, uh, as I said before, it seems these individuals had the, a, a miraculous revealing to them of, of the truth, but they were still to continue on to learn and, and, to, and to grow. Now, if they did have a miraculous revealing of the truth to them, it doesn't apply to us today, does it? It also would imply that someone had to go and lay hands on them, correct? Because it didn't come, it wasn't a baptism of the Holy Spirit that someone had to lay hands upon them because we know the Bible only teaches twice the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, household of Cornelius, that's it, right? And so if they received a miraculous uh, you know, uh, miraculous revealing of the truth. It had to be out through laying on the hands of someone. Uh, you do not need anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie. I mean, what they have heard is, is true. It's not false because it comes from God. The Bible tells us it's impossible for him to lie. And just as it taught you, that truth is what is teaching them. He says, you will abide in him. And so they will abide in Christ as long as they continue to follow that teaching they have received way back in the beginning that continues to abide in them. And if they keep those things, they will abide in Christ, right? Now, for us today, we don't have the ability to have someone lay their hands on us and have us receive some miraculous ability to all of a sudden understand things or have knowledge. And so we today still have to study, and even here in verse 27, they still were told to study, right? They still were, were to be encouraged to be those who are students of God's Word, because one of the best ways to be on guard against Antichrist, which they were warned against, is to be what we call sometimes students of the Bible. And we can do that by just studying and reading our Bibles. We become students of God's Word. Now, if you look at verse 28, it says, And now, little children... Abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So he's telling us we, we, he wants them and us today still to have confidence in that when we remain faithful to God, when we remain in his word, when Christ returns, we can what? Stand before him with confidence, with assurance. Because for the unfaithful, the day of judgment is that a scary day. But for the faithful, those who have remained following God's word, that is a day they can stand before Christ in confidence, knowing they have done all they can to remain faithful to God. And when I say that, I don't mean because some people, they, they say, well, I've done all I can, and their effort is about 25%. But when we say we have done all we can, we mean we are students of God's word. We make a mistake. We own up to it. We repent of it, and we continue to try to remain faithful to God. Thereby, we are doing all we can to remain faithful to God and follow his words. And the day of judgment, we can have confidence when we stand before Christ. 
He says they're to have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, what brings shame? Not doing what we should be doing, right? Now, they knew what they should be doing. He mentions there how they don't need to be taught about certain things because they did have knowledge, but they were still encouraged and reminded to, to be on guard against false teachers. But if they decided not to do that, would they stand before Christ ashamed? Yeah. If we refuse to make things right in our life, the day of judgment will be a day of shame. And there's no reasoning that can justify our actions that we refuse to turn away from and to, and to rid, them, rid those things out of our lives. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, you think about this for a moment. If you know that he is righteous, he is a reference to God, right? You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That born of him is a way of saying that we are followers of God. Him is a reference to God. So if God is righteous and we practice righteousness, being we understand this because in context, because you can pull this out and say, well, say I do, you know, I do good things all the time, so I'm born of God. That's not what he's talking about. Good things and righteousness do not always go hand in hand. Righteousness is avoiding sin, obeying God's word. All those things we've already talked about, right, is encompassed in the word righteousness in verse 29. So everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, is a follower of God. But again, that condition, right? If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So if we practice righteousness, we have God's approval, and that includes obedience to the gospel and remaining faithful to him. Any comments or questions before we get into chapter 3? Chapter 3, you look at verse 1 alone, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. We mentioned this last time. And we look at verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love has, has uh, love the Father has bestowed on us. If you were to try to put in words God's love for mankind, don't you think it really not in the most clear way to help, underst- help him understand God's love for us is to go back and show examples of it? Isn't it interesting that one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, no matter who you talk to, is John 3 and verse 16, which talks about God's love, right? We go to the book of Romans, it tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I believe Romans 5 and verse 8 there. And so the Bible is full of examples of God's love because when you try to put things in words sometimes, sometimes words fail us, right? Our spouse who's been near to us and close to us for X number of years, Sometimes trying to put those things into words, how we feel about them, it can be hard to do. Not get mushy, but it can be hard to do, right? To express our feelings for them. Or anyone else in your family who you care deeply about, or a friend, or hopefully how we feel about God, it's hard to put those things into words, isn't it? We have a song, sometimes we call it a camp song, that talks about you know how difficult it is to put into words how much we love God. And we look here in verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now here's an easy 
question for you. What are some things we can, examples we can use when we talk about how much God loves us? Let me put it another way. Did God love Noah and his family? So much so he waited until the ark was built before he killed everyone else on the planet, right? <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to do that. He could have done, I mean, he's God. He could have done a host of other things. But instead, he showed his love for, for Noah and really for everyone else who there because they had a chance to repent. But Noah and his family were into that ark for a year. I'm getting my time frame right. Before they came off of it, right? Waters ascended, the waters remained, the waters ascended, and the time they could come off the ark. That's a long time to be on the boat, to put it mildly, right? With a lot of animals and with your family, can you imagine being on a boat with your family for a year? You're like, well, I love my family. Well, we all do. A year on the boat, now that's a big ark. But the point I'm making, we're getting off track here, is God loved Noah, right? Did God love the people of Israel as we look at it in the book of Exodus when he brought them out? And cross the Red Sea. I mean, walls of water, dry land. You don't do that kind of stuff for people you care nothing about. The army pursued them, just wiped them out. Carried them across, they whined and complained. He corrected them as they needed to be corrected, sometimes pretty harshly, and they brought them to the promised land. Right? And that's a very watered down illustration of it, but God's love is seen throughout all that, right? Because at any point in time, isn't it true that God could have said, you know what, let's just start all over and just kill everybody, including Noah and his family. Or forget Israel, they're so hard-headed and stubborn, we can just let them die in the wilderness. But he doesn't do that. Because he loves mankind, and he loves those individuals. He loved them. And we go on and on and on and talk about people like Daniel, who God spared in the, in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were there cast in a burning fire furnace. We go to the New Testament, look at numerous times, the apostles and brethren stood before various leaders and were let go. Paul was put in prison, but isn't it interesting? Paul was alive long enough to continue to write numerous uh, letters, which most of the New Testament being written from Paul, from, uh, from prison. I don't know why that all of a sudden stopped working. But God's love is seen by those types of things, right? It's seen by him sparing people. It's seen by him providing for his for those who love him. And we look at 1 John chapter 3, looking at verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. We mentioned this before, children, because we are part of the family of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. I mean, the world doesn't know us in a sense. They don't know just really how much, how much hope we have, how much promise we possess, because the world doesn't know God. Can the world truly know a Christian without knowing God? They can see their actions, right? They see the person gets up on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and goes to those services. They see the person who gets up and goes to the VBS and the gospel media. They see all those types of things, right? They see things. They may have conversations with you, but to, to actually know that individual, they have to know God, right? If we go to another congregation that is faithful to the Lord, we don't have to know that person firsthand, but we know that we get up if they're faithful to God. We start talking about salvation. We know that they're going to agree. 
The world doesn't know that kind of thing, right? Because the world, when they speak, they don't, they don't know a person next to them is going to agree with it or not. They don't know what is absolutely right, what is absolutely wrong, but the Christian does because the Bible reveals that. And so the world cannot really know us until it really knows God who loves us. Looking at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. We being a reference to Christians, right? Are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we, but we know what we, we, but we know that when he, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall be, for we shall see him as he is. Talking about our spiritual bodies, again, not knowing exactly what those will be like, but we do know that we will be uh, spiritual beings. Paul talks about how our, our mortal bodies will put on immortality, and we will be with Christ, with God, the faithful for all eternity. How exactly what that body is going to be like, the Bible does not quite reveal it, as he points out here in verse 2. But what is the most important thing to take away from verse 2? It's not the we don't know, it's the what we do know, right? We mentioned this last time. That he, he will see him as he is. He will be with God, be with Christ. That's really all that matters. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so when we have this hope, this hope of eternal life, what do we do? We clean ourselves of any sin, thus purify ourselves, right? We obey the gospel, so we have that hope. And if we sin afterwards, which we know we're going to because we're human beings, we repent of those things, thus we purify ourselves. And what, do we ha- what happens? We become pure in the eyes of God, and we will to, to be with God and with Christ and all the faithful on that, uh, after that faithful day of judgment. Looking at verse 4 here, says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, to me, that's probably one of the most simple verses in the Bible to, de- to define sin, right? Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So if you're going to commit sin, we, it means we go against a law. But he's not talking about the laws of the land, though included in the laws of God are to obey the laws of the land. So, yes, we could see them that way. The laws he's talking about are the laws of God. So, disobeying God's laws is sin, according to verse 4, right? When people are asking us, how can you know what is absolutely right, what is absolutely wrong? We go to the Bible. If it goes against God's word, it's wrong every time. Verse 5, and you know he you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Who is the he who is manifested in verse 5? Manifested being just means revealed. Who is the he? Jesus, right? The same one we read about in John chapter 1. He was manifested, he was revealed. And you know that he was manifested and to, to take away our sins. That is, he came to earth, and he was revealed as the Son of God. And to do what? To take away our sins, he did so how? On the cross, right? On the cross, he laid down his life for all mankind, our sins we washed away when we put our obedient faith in him. And he says that in him, that's a reference to Christ, there is no sin. That means when he died on the cross, he didn't carry his sin. There was no sin of his to carry. It's like... You know, sometimes you hear kids say, well, I get blamed for everything, right? Well, on the, on the day that Christ went to the cross, the blame did go on him, did it? In the sense that you hear the sins of all mankind. 
Now, we understand that he was innocent, while at the same time carrying the, carrying the sins of the guilty, the sins of the guilty. He wasn't guilty, but he carried the sins of the guilty, right? An innocent man dying for all mankind, and in him there is no sin. No sin. You know, it's, it's amazing to me when you step back and think about all the stuff that Christ had to endure, all the, those who talk, to put it in 2021 terms, who talk trash about him, the Pharisees who mocked him, those who, who spit upon him, those who want to see him in prison, and all those hard times he faced, he never once sinned. You got to remember Matthew 4, he was tempted by the greatest tempter who has ever lived, Satan himself. After he, was, after he was hungry for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Fasting. At his probably, besides, besides the scourging and the crucifixion, probably Matthew 4 is the weakest you see Christ physically, right? And during all that, never sinned. Now think about this for a second. You ever get cranky when you get hungry? I know I do. I can't imagine how Christ was able to endure Matthew chapter 4 alone, besides everything else. I mean, that was just the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, even his earthly mother in John chapter, please, John chapter 3, uh, when, when he was being asked about the, you know, turning water into wine at that wedding feast there, and he told her, it was not, my hour has not yet come, right? Now, we continue to move on through the life of Christ. He faced hardship to hardship. Even his own disciples at times would walk away from him, right? John chapter 6, we told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. We reference that to the Lord's Supper, right? But many of them walked away, right? John 6 and verse 66. And yet while people were literally were abandoning him, he still did not sin. When think about it, when people walk away from you, is it hard to, to, to stay away from sinning? It's hard from just, you know, saying things against them, attacking them, not attacking them, saying something that's wrong, but we are anger gets the best of us. Do you remember how Christ responded in John 6, uh, verse 66 and following? Uh, when he asked the question, will you also go away? I believe that's actually verse 66. I think verse 63 is when he actually walked away. But anyway, in that text, he asked him, will you also go away? And so he faced, I say all that, say he faced all these hardships, and yet verse 5 points out again, there, there, in him there is no sin. Incredible thing to think about. Verse 6, whoever abides in him, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, if you read verse 6, you think, okay, so we're in Christ, you never sin. There are those who will read that, and actually there's some who will teach that when you become a Christian, you never sin again. That's not what he's talking about. When we look at verse 6, we're to look at the Greek. The idea there is when you, when you, those who abide in him do not live in sin. If we do not sin, then why does John say back in chapter 1 and verse 9, we confess our sins? Well, I thought we don't sin. Right? According to, to verse 6, you would take that at face value, right? But if you look at the Greek, it's the idea that we don't live in sin. Because the Bible does not contradict. So you must be talking about we don't live in sin anymore if we're abiding Christ. That is, it's not a lifestyle for us. The lifestyle of living in contradiction to God is not part of the Christian lifestyle. He who abides him does not sin, does not abide in sin. Literally, the idea there, whoever sins or lives in sin, has neither seen him nor known him. So we cannot live in continual sin and say that we are a Christian. You ever get 
the response of, well, they have a good heart. When someone's talking about someone else, I hear this sometimes about various individuals, sometimes about friends, acquaintances, sometimes about family. Well, they have a good heart. You ever hear that at a funeral? Someone you've known is, <laughs> didn't even have a good heart, so to speak, right? I've been a part of, I haven't been a part of, I've attended funeral, certain funeral uh, services over the years. And having known that person, having had interactions with them, and you hear someone get up there and talk about them, you think, well, at least I have this experience, you think, that doesn't match up the person who I met. I didn't hear them say kind words or be respectful. Because with that idea here, we look at verse 6, it's the idea we don't live in sin. But a lot of people say they're a Christian. A lot of people say they have a good heart or someone has a good heart, but they could be the most vile person on the planet, depending on who they're talking about. Because for some, the idea of condemning someone to hell, which we don't condemn them, they condemn themselves by their actions, by admitting that, owning up to that, <laughs> Well, that sounds cruel. So people will say things like, well, they have a good heart. But look at verse 6. Christ says, or John here says, whoever abides in him does not sin. That is, again, literally meaning the, the verse there, or the Greek literally meaning does not continue to, to sin. Uh, does not. So whoever abides in him does not continue to sin, does not continue to live in sin. So a person who, who is a Christian, they have to have more than just a good heart, don't they? They have to be someone who is abiding in God's word. And so it's more than just a good heart. It's that following God. doesn't mean they have to be perfect because we're only making mistakes. But as long as they repent of it, and as long as we repent of it, we don't have to feel like we're one of those who fall in the category of being someone who just has a good heart. We are someone who, is, who has followed God and has strived very hard to remain faithful to him. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. We've heard that before, haven't we? Let no one deceive you. Let no one trick you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So he is a reference to God. And so if you look at verse 6, and you look at verse 7, really verse 7 helps us understand verse 6 because he talks about practicing righteousness. Practicing righteousness is the idea that we live righteously. We try to live righteously before God. Practices righteousness. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, if we were to take verse 6 and say, well, if anyone who's a Christian does not sin, verse 7 will disagree with you. Verse John 1, verse 9 will disagree with you, right? Christ and a lot of other places would disagree with you. And so we have to realize that he's talking about we do not live continue, we do not live in sin while trying to claim ourselves to be a Christian. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, verse 7. And notice verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. Now, keep put this in context. We're not talking about someone who sins as a demon, right? Because we talked about before, a person who practices righteousness is of God, which means they are a follower of God. So a person who sins or continues to live in <clears throat> sin is what? They're a follower of, we could say technically the devil, but they're a follower of sin. They're a slave of sin, right? He's not talking about they're actually a demon, but they are followers of the devil, which is the devil's motto is do whatever you want. Just don't follow God. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil is what? Well, for honest, that's a big spectrum of things, right? The work of the devil, in very general terms, is to cause you to slip up, to sin, to keep you there, to hold you there, so you don't ever come out of it again. To keep you in sin. That's the works of the devil. Through temptation, through mockery, through jealousy, through, you know, for honest, through guilt. People today try to make you feel guilty for not living in the same sin they live in. We've always done it this way, especially in family gatherings sometimes, or gatherings with friends. We've always done this. This means right. And so guilt sometimes, because we feel bad, well, you know, I'm the only one who's not doing this, and be the only one who's not doing it. You know, I'm not, if we're honest, Christians are called peculiar people, which means we're different from everybody else, which means we're kind of odd compared to the world. Which is interesting because you look at the world, it's pretty strange out there, isn't it? It's, it's interesting that we're the ones that call the, the, the odd or the strange. But anyway, looking at verse 8. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. We can take this back from Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 3. But we also know that there's a reason he's called the devil, the father of all lies. Because sin is who he is, right? That's his way of existing. Looking at verse uh, 8. He says here, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. To do what? To combat the works of the devil. The devil wants us to commit sin, stay in sin, and stay there until you die. Because once you die in sin, he's your, you are his, right? But, verse 8, for, the, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or revealed, that he might destroy the works of the devil. When Christ came to the earth... How was he? How did Satan greet him? If you want to use that term? What happened at Christ's birth? Kings were against, or king, way king was against him, right? So much so that remember he made a certain decree, which shows you the power of the devil and the evil thoughts that men get sometimes. Remember the decree the king put out in an effort to try to kill Christ as a child. Every male child in the age of two, right? Kill them all. Now, if you're, if you're living in his kingdom during that time, you think, we need to find a new kingdom, right? Regardless of the age of your children, because only an insane, psychotic person would put out that kind of decree. But that's what he does. Now, the Bible doesn't reveal exactly everything about the mindset of that king, but isn't it logical to conclude that Satan had a hand in that? I don't mean he put his hand on him instead of doing this, but you think he had a hand in that? Jealousy of the king, fear of the king, misunderstanding of the king, because he really understood who Christ was. He wouldn't try to kill him. He would have brought him in and put him in a very safe and secure place, right? But he didn't. We move on from the life of Christ, continuing forward. We know that he continued to fight against Christ through the Jews, hard-headed Jews, the hard-headed Pharisees and Sadducees. He would not turn from their pattern of of uh, following their man-made traditions. But Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, which included sin in every possible way, the temptation of sin, the lure of sin. Like we talked about in chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Christ came to, to combat all of those things because all those things will separate us from God. Now, let's look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God... 
does not sin, does not live in sin, right? Remember, that's what we're talking about, live in sin, because it cannot contradict. For his seed remains in him, for he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, cannot sin, does not sin, is what? It's the literally meaning in the Greek, they, they cannot live in sin and be born of God. They cannot live in sin and be a child of God at the same time. Christ is the same thing back in the Gospels, doesn't he? He says you cannot serve God and mammon. That's what he's talking about here in the same, same, really the same idea. You cannot be living in sin, living like the world, and say, I'm a follower of God. Yet people do it all the time. I'm convinced, in my limited experience of this, that when you talk to some people, they say they're a Christian just so you'll leave them alone. Even if they mean a denominational sense. They want to get you off their doorstep, away from them, and not have that conversation. Because a biblical New Testament Christian means you rid sin out of your life. And until you talk to someone who's trying to tell you they're a Christian with a beer t-shirt on, the world doesn't understand who God is. And so we have those today who will use the idea that they are a Christian because at some point they obeyed some form of obedience, either by a denominational sense or maybe they once remember the church. But we cannot live in sin and be a child of God at the same time. If we have sin in our life, that's when we have to repent of it, going back to 1 John 1 and verse 9, right? That's why we say when we talk about cannot sin, it's not literally that you never sin ever again, but it's that we do not live in sin. That old lifestyle is not a part of who we are. It's not a part of who we are. Any comments or questions before we move on here? All right, then let's look at verse 10. He says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, or again, revealed, right? In what? In how they live. That's what he's talking about. And how they live, they, that's how they are revealed. Christ also tells us by their, by their fruits you shall know them. In the context, he's talking about false teachers, but in reality that applies to Christians as well, doesn't it? By their fruit you shall know them. Well, here in 1 John 3 and verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That is, they are not a Christian. Nor is he who does not love his brother. And brother there, he's not talking about your, brother, your blood brother, though you should love your family. But he's talking about your brother or sister in Christ. Now, he moves from, because much of this so far has been about you can't live in sin and then say you're a follower of God. And verse 10 really helps us, and verse 19 really helps us understand that, right? Verse 9, you cannot, uh, he cannot sin, he cannot live in sin because he has been born of God, he is a Christian. Verse 10, in this, the children of God and children of the devil are manifest or revealed. That is, in this, what? In their lifestyle and their way of living and their choices and their language. Everything you'll learn about a person. You ever go into a store? Well, if you do shopping by yourself, you, you probably have gone to stores alone and heard different conversations. And sometimes I don't ever get involved in conversations that I walk by in a store. Uh but sometimes you hear things. I don't mean biblical things. I mean, you hear people, the way people talk to one another. 
the things they're talking about, their, how they're, the language they use. And it reveals certain things about them just for the few moments you're sitting there. Right? I mean, if you're sitting there looking at a can of soup and hear a guy down, you know, two sections down, cursing about the price of mac and cheese, has it been revealed to you that they're a Christian? No. I mean, maybe they are having a really bad day, but your judgment's going to be, we need to get this soup and find a different, find a different aisle, right? Uh, it, certain things are revealed by our lifestyle, and no doubt being a Christian is one of them. He goes on to say in verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness, does not, that is not tr- who, who is not trying to live in a way that's pleasing to God, he says, uh, is not of God, nor is he who does not, does not love his brother. And what we're talking about here is we move forward, he's going to focus on loving the brethren, loving one another. Because as we mentioned many times before, we may have differences of opinion, we may have different personalities, and we all do. But we should all want one another, one another to get to heaven, right? One of the most disappointing things I heard, I was at a congregation before, and a sister came up and said, you know, we just, I may have mentioned this, if I have, just bear with me. But she said, you know, we have some people here, they just, they don't get along, they really seem to hate one another. They hate this person, and he doesn't seem to hate them back, but I don't know for sure, but this family really seems to hate this person. Okay. So we did a lesson about how it's not Christian to hate your brother or sister. Right, we can be disappointed in people. We can be discouraged by their decisions, but to hate someone means basically you don't care what happens to them. That's what I think about. It. You don't care what happens to them. I mean, we're discouraged in how people act sometimes, right? We're disappointed. We get frustrated, but we still love them, right? Or we should. Think about your own physical family. Do you get frustrated with people, with your children, with your spouse at times? Well, yeah, we're going to. And what we do, we still love them. Do we still want the best for them? Well, yeah. It's the same way with our Christian family. We may get frustrated with one another or have disagreements. We should still love one another. Did Christ ever get frustrated with the disciples? I mean, how many times you read the phrase, how do you, you know, you find the idea there that their understanding was not complete, and he has to explain parables to them, right? And I'm glad he did. But their, their understanding was not where he wanted it to be yet. And he, he, I think at the time, he shows some frustration, not sin, but frustration. And he explains things to them. And so I, I think of that example many times as well. We can be uh, disappointed in one another, but we should not ever get to the point where we just hate one another. Look at verse 11. For this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this is the second time we've heard this phrase, this is a message you have heard from the beginning, right? Is it different from what they heard before? Or is it a part of what they have heard before? It's probably a part of what they've heard before, right? I mean, read the gospel. There's love in there. There has to be love when you talk about the gospel of Christ. He says, for this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so from the beginning, we are to love one another. Adam and Eve, they love one another. They love God. Yeah, did God love them? Yes. Did he still kick them out of the garden when they disobeyed? Yes. Did he ever stop loving them? No. No, he did not. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning. Uh, when we come back next time, we'll pick up in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 3.